0: Welcome to The Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView, and your host today, Wednesday, July 14th, 2021. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our free monthly newsletter, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Patreon and Substack. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. My guest today is Joe Atikian, speaking to us from Toronto. Joe, you've been a longtime reader of our newsletter and have sent me some pretty on-point comments, but this is the first time that we're actually speaking together. Welcome to the Hale Report.
1: Thanks very much, Lyric. Thanks a lot for inviting me.
0: Not at all. I was excited to learn about your new book, Autonomous, The Coming Crash of Self-Driving Cars, which frankly confirms some of my worst fears on the subject. Um, But before we talk about your book, let me introduce you to our listeners. Joe Atikian is a Toronto author writing on economics and technology. His professional background uh, is focused on the electrical utilities and automotive industries in engineering, design and development, and management. Joe has written about global and regional transitions that have technological, economic, and political implications leading up to his book, which we are discussing today. Joe is a loyal listener to my podcast. I imagine, you know, that I always begin with the same question. How did you first become interested in the subjects that defined your career? How did you become a car guy?
1: Okay. I have to say, I love the question. Um, you won't believe the beginnings of my uh experience with cars because i was i'm going to say 2 years old when i first got behind the wheel and i almost what? <laughs> i almost destroyed our family. Yeah, that's right. I took control and i careened down a large hill and it was a uh, not an accident. It was uh nothing nothing bad happened. It was totally fine. But that was my first uh foray into and and it sort of stuck with me for the rest of my life. Um, so, I um, at the beginning of my uh, um, post-secondary education, I had a few years in uh, mechanical engineering technology. So that launched my um, industrial career, and uh, that started out in the utilities, in the nuclear electrical generation utility. And from then, I um, left that field and I went into the private sector in uh, automotive parts manufacturing. And so I spent a couple of decades um, in in every facet of that, doing engine systems and all sorts of components inside. Um, So that was on the technical side. And then a little bit later in my my career, I transitioned into uh, economics by um, going back to school. And I went to University of Toronto and got an undergraduate degree in philosophy as a specialist in philosophy and as a major in economics. So I consider myself to be sort of a philosopher in progress. And I guess the way, maybe the way I think about that, the way I describe that is, you know, not a sort of dreamy philosopher, but as someone who analyzes, uh, synthesizes ideas, and then explains, and then, you know, try to um, get into a sort of system level understanding of how the world works. And in this case, the world is technology.
0: That's right. And that really comes through your philosophical approach. And it really comes through in your book. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. You know, the way I began was also in the automotive industry. We're both in the sort of the middle West of North America, but my very first client was the Japan Auto Parts Industries Association. Mm -hmm. So, so, uh, working with them as they began to establish their manufacturing facilities here. So, uh, that's why another reason I couldn't help but ask that question. So, um, you know, I would say that your book is quite skeptical about the promise of self-driving cars. Uh, it It does seem to me that we are in a Jetson type situation. 50 years ago, we thought by this time that we would have flying cars. But of course, we don't why do some technologies speed ahead and others stall you make a very a terrific point you you say that it's not about the adoption of the technology in this case but actually the technology itself can you explain why the technology um doesn't really work in your view
1: yeah i mean um it's a it's a good question but i i don't want to be uh negative about the whole thing and i think Okay. You know, I'll close out the book with, uh, you know, with some positive examples of places where it does work and it can work, but I'm, I'm deeply skeptical for one reason in particular, and it's central to the whole idea of autonomous vehicles in general. And the reason is that there's a, a historic and fundamental change in what we're asking the technology to do, and that task is to be the controller of the vehicle. So if you look back, for example, at, um, you know, the first transition away from, um, let's say personal transportation in terms of bicycles and, and, um, horse-drawn vehicles, for example, um, the human person was always at the controls and the human person can, you know, scan the vista, see what's ahead, see what's behind, take cues from all of the senses that we have at our disposal and, Now we're asking to get rid of the human being for the first time in history on a massive scale. And it's not that it's not been done. It's not that we don't have autopilots in, um, you know, cars and boats and trains and things like that. We have those. Um, But this is asking, this industry is asking for uh, a complete shift in the controller of the vehicles at a massive scale that's never been done before. And... That I think is the central the central issue in this whole thing, so that's that's where I would make the distinction.
0: Um, So uh, the other technological advances were really human enabled, is what you're saying.
1: Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Since I was a you know I'd say entrant and a long term you know player in the auto industry, I read a lot of history and I think I've done a lot of analysis on this question. And one of the first things that that happened in the in the early phase of the industry about 1915 in fact um, was that somebody in manufacturing said hey let's get rid of people because people are a major mm-hmm. cost and in some cases a major impediment There was the rise of unionism for example and someone proposed in 1915 to see if they could make uh, the frames of cars uh, without using any people whatsoever so the interesting part is is not so much that the proposal popped up, but that it took almost fifty years before we got the first industrial robot at a car company, and it's seen as being the first in any industry. So, 1961. So, almost fifty years later, um, did the first industrial robot came up after somebody proposed the idea, and I just think. Oh wow. my God, there were no constraints in that. People could just do it. There were no laws and there were no, you know, technological constraints that, you know, that were overbearing. And yet that's how long it took. So I found that astonishing when I read that. And I think the same principle applies here. Mm.
0: So implementation versus just the idea that there's a long road between those two destinations, so those, yeah, exactly. those two points. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, You said that the the most successful use of the technology to date, though, is the subway because that's a contained kind of area, whereas autonomous vehicles on the road, they're not just um, contending with other vehicles, they're contending with bicycles and dogs and cats and people who are walking. Is that part of the reason it's not a closed system? It's a very open system to other kinds of transportation.
1: Yes, in fact, um, in my mind that's, um, in in physical terms, that's the central reason. There are all all kinds of other peripheral reasons to that that are important as well, but that's exactly the mixed use environment um, that, for example, subways, in fact, over the past 10 years have started to take off a little bit. So in other countries that are, um, let's say, building almost entirely new cities or redeveloping entire cities, they are absolutely installing driverless subways and it's absolutely doable. There's no reason that it can't be done. Um, but again, for some strange reason and there's a lot of maybe political um, reasons in New York City, for example, but New York City, I think was <laughs> one of the first places in the world to have an automated subway and it never went anywhere. It was in operation for a year or something along that line. but um, I think it's maybe a little bit bizarre that it has never taken off in you know, what's purportedly the most technologically advanced country in the world. I, I don't you know contest that notion. I think it is the most advanced country in the world, but it's still, there are many, many things that got in the way of that happening.
0: Well, an example you give is high-speed rail in the U.S. and why we are the only technologically advanced nation that does not yet have high-speed rail. Um, why is that?
1: Oh, so high-speed rail is a, is a very interesting example because it's uh, um, multifaceted and maybe if I could condense it, it comes down to um, jurisdiction, like uh, legal jurisdiction for one thing. Because in the United States, there's a, a sort of uh, overarching regulatory bodies in, um, in only two facets of transportation and that's airlines and um, um, maritime shipping. So, really? Hmm. Yeah. So those are those are uh, you know uh, regulated by uh, an agency that has jurisdiction over the entire uh, field of operations. So airspace, for example, the FAA. Right. 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 Um, but in stark contrast to that, the uh, Railway Administration in the states um, is pretty much uh, taking a back seat to the states to the individual states, and they have a lot of uh, influence over. Um, railway tracks that run through each particular state and their regulations are different. And in this case, it's the coordination between the states and the resistance by the railways. So those two issues, the jurisdiction and the resistance by individual states and and, uh, corporate entities that have blocked that sort of technology from taking root.
0: So basically regulatory structural issues. It's not about the technology, which we know exists and works very well. In exactly. other countries. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it'd be nice if we had a high speed rail between here in Toronto and Chicago, oh. Chicago and New York, but uh, unfortunately it doesn't seem that the, those obstacles will be able to be overcome anytime soon. Um, I wonder too, if there's another similar issue related to connectivity and the internet, because you have to have, in order to have self-driving cars, they have to be connected. Uh, you talk about this vehicle-to-vehicle um, communications, but um, what I worry about is a sudden loss of connection to the internet that just disables all of the instructions and all of the the data that's incoming and outgoing. Is that another key issue and another reason why the promise hasn't been kept yet?
1: Um, you know, that's a, that's a great question, but I think the answer is no, that's not a, a major inhibitor. And the mm-hmm. reason the reason is that the infrastructure for autonomous vehicles on public roadways is going to be very different from, let's say, what we have in our homes. So I have a, mm-hmm. a line that goes out to the you know out to the street, and that line is connected to the internet. And if my connection was to fail, then I'm completely cut off. But the way that it's envisaged for autonomous cars is, let's say, with a 5G network, which essentially is um, small outposts that are all over the place and not big centralized hubs. So their uh, connections can still run through many different pathways to get back to the internet. It doesn't have to go directly through a single hub that can be knocked out. So I I don't think that's a a major technological impediment. Mm.
0: So um, the other issues that I wonder about are privacy and then um, a twin issue, which would be data overload. There's a huge amount of data that you would be generating, right? By going out to the supermarket, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, how would all of that data be handled? Is it possible that we, it, it's just a complete overload of the system? And then uh, looking at the privacy issues, you've seen what happened to Didi, the the, the uh, car hailing service in China mm-hmm. has been shut down essentially because the government fears the amount of data that a private company has been collecting. So Joe, how do you look at that, um, the data portion of this puzzle?
1: Yeah, so you're right. Um, in, the, in the book, I break it down into two sections and, you know, it's maybe phrased a little bit funny, but it's not funny at all. There are Two chapters are called data overload all and right. data data overlord. So it's, it's, it's exactly exactly the issues that you're talking about. Um, the overload issue is is a tremendous, tremendous challenge. And I don't really see it as something that cannot be done. It's technically, I think there's no reason that it cannot be done. It should certainly be able to fly. It's maybe a matter of scale, a matter of you know, volume of production of maybe, okay, so chips are a big problem right now, but that's probably a trans- transitory Temporary. problem. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not so much a matter of not being uh, technologically possible. It's a matter, in my mind, of who's going to pay for two things. And one thing is who's going to pay for the infrastructure? Is it going to be the car companies, manufacturers, the car users, municipalities, maybe will? Have to be bearing some of that cost, um, and you know, let's say, for example, in Canada, we have uh, you know participation with the federal government, so the federal government might um, contribute to municipal budgets and that sort of thing. But who's going to pay for all that infrastructure? And it's a lot. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing is, who's going to pay for the data transmission? Who's going to pay for the service? So you know, a lot of sort of overlapping issues there. Um, some people see. Um, this kind of thing as being a public utility, and it should be a shared cost. Um, in Canada, we have different models, maybe for public utilities and electricity, than you do in the states. But um, you know, we have some shared models where uh, government pays for infrastructure, and then the user pays for the you know for the units. So those questions can vary country by country, and that may end up having a an impact on what kind of technology any country uses, which you know, further has an impact on um, commonality and standardization between all the different kinds of car companies that might arise. So if you don't have a standardized arrangement, then you have fragmented markets, and fragmented markets come, come with, um, you know, uh, cost increases because of small volume production and small volume of data transmission. Um, so there's all these, these issues run into each other and they entangle each other. Mm-hmm. So that's on the on the data overload side. Uh, I see that as as being uh, primary. It's, I think it's an economic issue on mm-hmm. the overlord side, which is the you know comes into um, privacy, for example. Well, it it's kind of entangled as well because um, you know at least let's say here in Canada we have uh, strong uh, privacy regulators that are embedded in both the provincial and federal governments, and they uh, have already had influence in um, um, internet data issues. So uh, that runs immediately into regulation. And then we can see in China, I think there was a a report just came out probably in the last month or so, where they're starting to have those discussions about who's going to own data and who's going to have the rights to generating the data and who will have the rights to accessing the data, let's say in cases of Um, hacking or in cases of uh, accident reconstruction, for example, or Mm -hmm. blame laying, which is one of the big things that um, starts to show up in China in their regulations already in in preliminary versions of their regulations. One of the first things that they've done is, is um, uh, constructed a method of laying blame uh, in the event of a car crash. And so, what is
0: that? What's that method? How is that? Uh,
1: oh, it's super interesting. It's, the hmm. um, yeah, the um, the underlying principle. They, there is a. It's not just slapdash. It's an un, there's an underlying principle, of um, whoever benefits from using the technology, let's call it, whoever benefits is the one who will share in the blame. So, oh, I see. Yeah. So it could be, let's say, let's say there's a car sharing service like Uber or Didi or whoever, and they benefit from running their system, then if a car crashes, they're sharing the blame. But here's the, to me, there's the, the tragedy is already in the making. Let's mm-hmm. say you're a, you're a ride-hailing user and you call the company and then you put in the instructions, please go here, and the car crashes and hurts somebody. Apparently, under their system, you've benefited from this technology. Wow. So you'll share in the blame. Wow, I, I don't know the apportionment of the blame. I mean, it's it's really everything. Everything is vague right now.
0: So, I, I see a, a new insurance product right? on the horizon for right? this right? situation. Right? Yeah. There yeah. has to be a way of sharing. You know yeah. those costs, um, Joe. If you had to guess, where do you think um, this technology could possibly roll out? Would be it be in a small, controlled type of environment like a Singapore? where you don't have some of the issues that you've described here in the United States? Or is that a faulty assumption that that could be, it, it possibly could work in that environment?
1: No, in my mind, uh, Singapore would be the perfect, um, mm-hmm. jurisdictionally speaking, Singapore would probably mm-hmm. be the fir- perfect place. But not just perfect for that reason, but also, as you said, it's a, it's a city-state, so it's uh, self-contained. There's not a lot of variation in geography, for example. They could be constrained to the, you know, let's say the urban core or the, you know, the the bulk of the city. There could have uh, delineated regions where the technology is allowed to be used. Very easy to go ahead and implement that sort of law. You know, with a fairly strong, strong willful government, Mm -hmm. they can do that sort of thing quite easily. And it's a little bit magic because it's combined with a tropical um, climate. So no snowbanks and snowbanks well, are, I think, the big one.
0: I, that was going to be my next question. Oh, I'm Toronto sorry. Toronto and Chicago exactly I'm leading. No, no, I mean, I'm glad you brought it up because you, you bring in parking in a snowbank and how that makes this very difficult. The climate is also an issue. And that, uh, before I read that, I ha- that hadn't occurred to me. But I think you're right. How does that affect this technology then? You get stuck and the car doesn't know what to do and it overloads or <laughs> <laughs> what's the sequence of events. And also, you know, these blizzards that we have, they can blanket both of our cities and the entire Northeast at the same time.
1: Yeah, exactly. You
0: know, exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, part of my daily routine is to sit on my front porch and observe because mm-hmm. um, I think I, you know, I live on a typical street and, you know, so we have uh, UPS trucks, and we have garbage trucks and we have construction. And in the winter, we have heavy snow and all that sort of thing. And one of the things that happens is that, you know, one of my neighbors doesn't drive during the winter. The car sits on the road and it gets engulfed in a snowbank. And so now there's a, a snowbank that's literally five feet high and it has a, a metal core. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a permanent feature until the spring. And mm-hmm. uh, the implications are. Far and wide um, for autonomous cars, because one of the things that they do um, is they drive around and they map the streets as they go. So they pick up things like the curbs and the stop signs and signposts, and they pick up uh, driveways and and they'll map it inch by inch, and it's getting very very precise. It's highly impressive. So I'm not down on the technology; it's really wonderful. But um, then the the giant variable that geography throws at you as the snowbanks come along in the wintertime. And they're extreme in Toronto. I mean, we don't do a good job of clearing snow. And I think it's probably the same in Boston and DC and, you know, maybe Anchorage or wherever.
0: That's um, right.
1: Yeah. So they don't do a great job of clearing the snow. So um, what happens to that high precision map that had the curb laid out all the way down every street for this autonomous car to follow? So once the snowbanks come in, and I mean, they take out five or six or ten feet of the width of the right. road. Right. So now where's the car supposed to go? It obviously can't drive down where the, the curb is mapped out. So now it has this, this new constraint, and the shape changes maybe every day. So if a snowplow comes by tomorrow night, it changes the shape of the roadway. And my neighbor's car is still there buried in the... In the bank, and then it freezes and melts and freezes and melts and it becomes an iceberg. And it's as far as I'm concerned, it's a catastrophe on the road. And it's a regular event. This is nothing right unusual. Right. So what will the car system do with all that? I have to say, frankly, I really don't know. And I think nobody's talking about it because in all the research I've done and over the years, I've not seen anything that says how to deal with, um, specifically that snow banks. It's, that it's, issue. It's the major thing. Yeah.
0: Well, I always thought that the, the, the greatest benefit of a self-driving car would be that you could drive to where you wanted and then the car could go park itself and saving you time. And then you could come back, then you'd let the car know and it would pull right up to the restaurant or wherever you were. Um, how does parking figure into this as well?
1: Well, uh, I absolutely love that idea. If I go mm-hmm. somewhere, and you know, it's always a pain to park the car and then walk, you know, through the muddled up parking lot and all that. So driving the car there, sending it away, I just love the idea. But where's it gonna go? Uh, in my mind, mm-hmm. it's not just my car. It's hundreds of cars and maybe thousands of cars. And in Toronto, for example, when you commute every day of the week, um, Oh, I have to admit, I don't remember the number. Half a million or two million trips, commuting trips into the city every day. So we're wow. talking about hundreds Lots. of thousands, <laughs> yeah, massive volumes of cars. So where are they gonna go when they go away? And all we can see now is that they go away um, in order to, you know, not have all this parking that people are talking about getting rid of. So when the car goes away, well. Some people will just maybe send it around to drive around the neighborhood. So Mm -hmm. pick up
0: passengers, make money.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe true. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's right. That's right. So let's say that's the good case. That's the happy case, right? Right. The same car goes and picks up somebody else and drops them off and does all that duty. So at the end of the day, when nobody else is around, let's say at 10 o'clock or midnight or whatever, the car has to be somewhere. It has to physically be somewhere. And where will that be? Well, maybe some people say it's out in the suburbs. They're going to have cheap parking lots in the suburbs. Well, as far as I'm concerned, that sounds like a commute for the car. So you have the wear and tear on the car. You have the energy consumption. You have the data consumption. So all of those things have not gone away. And in fact, they're probably added because, um, strangely enough, the computer systems in these cars that generate all that data and use all that data for mapping and all that, Um, the data, the energy consumption is enormous and I've seen it. Yeah, exactly. I've seen uh, estimates of a 30% reduction in the driving span of a battery electric vehicle, for example, 30%. I mean, it's, it's utterly enormous and that's just for the computation. So I don't know what else happens in in the system. Well, that's the onboard computation, but then there's also, let's say if the 5G system is the one that's is most dominantly widespread that's a computer system that has has these little outposts let's say every hundred yards or every mile or whatever it is and all of those have data consumption and energy consumption so layered on top of the parking issue is the energy issue and Mm -hmm. um, so again i really struggle to convince myself that this is going to be a a solution for all the things that people are talking about
0: it hardly sounds carbon neutral (laughs)
1: Well, that's a point.
0: <laughs> and, But, the you know, um, going to electric cars, does that mean, how does this technology interface with electric versus gasoline cars? It Does it mean that we have to go to all electric before we could have autonomous v- vehicles? But given the constraints you're, you're saying on the battery life and so forth, that could be, you know, maybe it's better to have gasoline-powered cars become autonomous vehicles. Maybe they would be more resilient. Mm-hmm. in terms of energy what do you think
1: well your automotive background is popping up because i think it's a good idea um <laughs> it, it's not the popular idea but um no i have to say that i don't think that being autonomous um really is reliant on what the vehicle technology is you could do it with gas cars you could do it with with mm-hmm. um electric cars you know they have autopilots on on um you know, turbine aircraft. Exactly. Yeah, right. you could have a, it. Could, it could apply anywhere. Yeah.
0: Um, one little tidbit from your book that I got, which I didn't know, is that um, Henry Ford's wife, Clara Ford, actually drove an electric car. Mm-hmm. And I forget the year, but it was 1912 or 15 or something like that. Could, could things have gone a different way um, historically if uh, Clara had gotten her way? rather than henry
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's a that's a great question um yeah i think uh, things could have gone differently for a number of reasons because electric cars Mm -hmm. were the thing at the beginning and right um if it wasn't for you know and i know you're a big fan of innovation in uh, economic sphere as well it's a it's a big player in everything in our prosperity and and uh you know economic progress um but let's say for example uh uh, Herr Daimler didn't do the um, gasoline-powered car, and if Henry Ford and and Sloan and uh, GM hadn't done mm-hmm. all the innovations they had they had done, which overpowered by far the electric cars of the day, if they hadn't done those things, then there's no reason absolutely electric cars could still be around, and they could have been around the entire period. Maybe their range would be their usable range might be twenty miles or two hundred miles or something less than gas or diesel powered cars, but there's no reason that they couldn't still be around. Absolutely. Mm.
0: So a lot of resources are being devo- uh, being devoted to electric cars and in, especially in China, there are all kinds of goals that they have to become completely electric. But what about also the space race? What do you, since that's another form of transportation, what do you, do you think about all of the resource being, resources now being allocated to space travel? Coincidentally, in the case of Elon Musk, the same person who is devoted to self-driving cars, how do those things all work together? How do you see that? Is this a good use well, of our you know, should, should we be doing something else? High speed rail?
1: Um, yeah, generally the way I look at that question is that there's no reason that we can't do all of it. I mean, okay. to, to me, it's not either or. But it's it's definitely both. I mean, I like the idea of you know, island dwellers, let's say 2,000 years ago, looking out at the ocean and, and heading out in a boat and discovering, you know, the Micronesian islands, for example, the far Pacific, far-flung islands all over the place. They didn't have to do that, you know, but it's kind of like it's, uh, you know, it's part of the human DNA. So right. actually, you know, uh, taking that activity on, I, I'm okay with that concept. Um, but there's an interesting tie-in with that as well. And um, I mean, to a the tie into autonomous vehicles. So the link there is that um, flying a spacecraft, launching a spacecraft, um, there's no pilot at the controls. Those three guys mm-hmm. sitting on top of the module.
0: They're they not driving. They're not absolutely
1: <laughs> not driving it. No, no, no. It's kind of like somebody uh, at mission control presses a button and says, okay, go ahead. Everything's right. fine. And then the computers take over. And guess when that started, you know, that was in around I think 1961 when they they did the math and put the mm-hmm. rocket on top of the thing and went ahead and did all so again the autonomous thing is not really the question. It's it's mm-hmm. that you know that launching a rocket is a single vehicle and it's in a controlled environment and there aren't, you know, baby strollers and dogs in its path. Right. Um, so I think you know, we have really have to look at that as a very different thing. Um, even though at the same time, it's very encouraging, um, and maybe especially so for Elon Musk, because he knows about the autonomous driving of the space rockets and easily that could make an optimistic, uh, viewpoint for the car world.
0: So, uh, you mentioned innovation and, um, uh, if, if you were made the innovation czar, Joe of Canada, and you're the advisor to Prime Minister Trudeau. What advice would you give him that comes from your understanding of the complexity of the implementation of even sexy technologies like autonomous driving? How what's going on in Canada now? Maybe you can update us a little bit since we can't come and visit.
1: Right. Uh, okay. So I I love that question too. Um, I'll. I'll give you one little nugget that's very uh, heartening for me. And when people talk about artificial intelligence, which is at the heart of um, controlling these vehicles, taking over the control from people, um, they talk about the Canadian mafia in artificial intelligence. And that relates to how deeply and widely we are involved in the creation of the technology. So I think if I'm if I'm correct in my memory, there was a professor of uh, maybe philosophy and information technology at University of Toronto, Jeffrey Hinton, and he was the one in the '80s who came up with the architecture for uh, computerization of our artificial intelligence. Um, so it's the neural networks and the deep learning and the back propagation, all those technologies, all those methods that are used. So in Canada, we have, in other words, an enormous foundation for um, answering your question already built into the country. We have a fantastic education system. And if I was the one that was to advise um, on this particular application, I would say, talk to me and ask all the hard questions up front. Don't Mm -hmm. wait. Don't wait until the system is developed in order to start addressing garbage trucks and UPS trucks and the snowbanks and the fog and the heavy rain mm-hmm. and the flooded, mm-hmm. the flooded rivers that we get in Toronto right. and you get in all sorts of cities. Don't wait for those things to come along and get you later. You have to build them in at the beginning or else you're really building yourself into a trap. And I come from that from my experience in the automotive industry. I did new product development all over the place. And it's not me. This is not me talking. This is the whole auto industry talking. Um, everything in the auto industry is done simultaneously. So the very first design, the very first sketch is integrated with um, quality assurance people. It's integrated mm-hmm. with uh, manufacturing and with um Um, maintenance and all the downstream activities, transportation, recycling, all of that stuff is Mm -hmm. discussed all together at the beginning. Because if it affects the design, get it out of the way first, and you minimize costs, minimize time, minimize quality problems all the way down the road. So there's no reason this should be any different. And I Mm -hmm. think if I can't find the research that says people are talking specifically about all the difficulties, the reliability and the complexities if they're not talking about it to the extent that I can find it online, then it's not anywhere near uh, developed enough and focused enough to make a successful package at the end of it. That's what I would say.
0: But, mm, and it seems like the auto, automotive industry actually is ideally suited to do that sort of planning.
1: Absolutely. And integration.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So if anybody could do it, they could do it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's because it's normal course for the auto industry um but i'm i'm thinking you know in this in this case it's um uh it's similar in some ways like it's normal course as i said for uh integrating all these uh technologies but on the other hand it's um a new suite of technologies and a new scale at which the product functions so we usually think of it in the auto industry we think of a car and this is the car is the unit the car is the unit that that the system functions at. But now with autonomous driving, it's not the car anymore. It's uh, maybe a million cars with data transmission and urban infrastructure and roadway infrastructure. And car companies just have never operated that at scale before, that scale of complexity.
0: Since uh, you began life as a philosopher, Joe, I'd Mm -hmm. like to drag you into a little bit of (laughs) philosophy of technology, actually. Okay. Um, Most people assume that technology is linear. The progress is linear. But actually, if you look at the long sweep of history, um, for example, Rome and Greece and Rome had all kinds of technologies that were subsumed in the problems of the Dark Ages Uh, China went through a very similar pattern where they developed, they were highly developed, the most uh, developed uh, technological society in the world, and then they pulled back. Um, I hear most people saying, and and by the way, the dark ages, uh, a pandemic was the problem there too. Mm -hmm. Most people assume that um, what we've gone through is going to jumpstart technology and that we've learned things, but could it actually? have the opposite effect? Is it necessarily going to push us forward? Might we go backwards in some ways? Might certain things slow down? So b- very big philosophical question for you on technological progress and, and what it means and what enables it and what stops it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's super interesting because my impression of it is that, uh, Technology has been speeding up. The development of technology has been speeding up for decades now. And I think I see it surging. Um, The pandemic certainly has caused me to do a lot more reading on biology. And, Mm. for example, CRISPR technology uh, and genetic engineering. Um, That's been greatly accelerated. And even though some people see it as a a looming threat, Right. um, it's, again, a matter of the same, same issues that we just finished discussing. It's uh, you know, regulation, uh, integration within uh, various industries. Um, and I don't think that uh, a pandemic on its own is going to do anything to slow the development of technology down. It may, in fact, um, well, some people would see it as as uh, making us back off in some ways, like just-in-time uh, delivery, and, for example, might get uh, shunted. Just as- in
0: case instead. <laughs> just in case, yeah.
1: Which mm-hmm. really, you know, if you talk to people who are inside the actual logistics industries, they'll say that they actually do have safety. They, they call it safety stock, but it's running around in the pipeline. It's, it's running around mm-hmm. in ships that are on the ocean for six weeks. It's sort of hidden, but... Um, there's no question; just in time is is going to take a hit, and globalization will definitely take a hit. Which it, mm-hmm. and globalization takes a hit every time globalization happens. It's a sort of a back and forth process. So I don't think there's any reason that it's going to be different this time. But I think the pan, this pandemic will sharpen the um, the implementation of some of the technologies that we have. Communications around the world has been utterly. Um, instrumental to, let's say, sequencing the the genomes of all the the variants of the viruses, for example, and sharing information and, and doing a sort of tag team sequence around the world of labs that are working on it with the data that was generated the night before somewhere else across the ocean. So this has been a fantastic demonstration of how we can actually speed things up instead of slowing things down. So... I could be wrong, you know. There's who, it's uh, too too many moving parts, as they say.
0: Who knows? <laughs> and the story still hasn't been completed, right? We Correct. still don't know exactly where we are. You know, one of my guests before was Robert Gordon, a professor economics mm-hmm. professor at Northwestern, and of course, you know, he writes about technology and productivity. Mm-hmm. And one of the great puzzles is why has productivity been slowing? But I'm wondering if now, because of the labor shortages that companies are experiencing right now, if there'll be more mechanization and maybe we will get the surge that we've been looking for that stopped in about 1970. So he doesn't look at the technologies of the internet and so forth as revolutionary as, say, the introduction of electricity just solely in terms of productivity. So it's, it's a question that economists are, are, are dealing with and discussing.
1: Yeah, there's one example that sort of stands out in my mind. Um, I'm working on another book on a, you know, sort of related lines. But um, one example is when, um, um, I guess during the Second World War, uh, America opened up the labor market to Mexican farm workers. And They stayed for, I don't know, 20 years or 18 years or something like that, maybe until the early 60s. And then there was a law introduced that um, sort of restricted the amount of uh, foreign labor. And what was their response? Tomato farmers uh, implemented mechanization. Right. So it's exactly exactly what you said, right? Yeah. (laughs) When there's a labor shortage, this is what happens.
0: That's yes, that's exactly. So um, tell us uh, what's next for you, Joe. What about your upcoming book? I, um, I I hear it's about work and inequality. And those are certainly very hot topics right now as well. Yeah, it's true.
1: It's true. Um, so I've got a couple of books uh, on the go right now. And one of them is exactly what you said. Um, so my previous book was called Industrial Shift, which sort of mapped out the, the last 50 years of uh, globalization and a change in manufacturing patterns and industrial structure all over the world. Um, So that was industrial shift. And I'm thinking I'm calling the next one income shift, which Mm. addresses the big thing that you're talking about. I like that. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: Um, I like that title.
1: Yeah. But you might not like the, you know, the approach that I'm taking. Um, I know a lot of people won't like it because Um, I'm kind of a contrarian in a lot of cases. I don't know if you noticed with this book on autonomous vehicles.
0: (laughs) That's why you're a guest on Econ View.
1: (laughs) So maybe I'll be back. Um, Yes. Yeah, I mean, um, income inequality uh, is uh, multidimensional, but as far as I'm concerned, um, I understand why, um, especially with the rise of, oh, let's say Elon Musk, let's name him by name. And Richard Richard Branson, you know, for this week's news. Um, The rise of the hyper wealthy um, and the mega billionaires um, has really cast a really sharp focus on income inequality. But it also depends on how you measure it. And there are a couple of measures that I'll put into my book that show that it's not really what it seems to be. Just wow. because of because of the way it's measured, and the, basically it comes down to uh, household income, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. if you look at personal income compared to household income, uh, there's a very different story. The Gini coefficient tells you a very very different story.
0: Really? Mm.
1: Yeah, but the, that sort of story is compressed or repressed or you know ignored or something like. Anyway, that's one tiny tiny bit of it, but it's along those lines. And I think you know the uh, for me one of my favorite parts of that whole um, book is how well people are um, in industry compared to how they used to be. They used to be, working in industry used to be a horrific venture. It was all injury and long-term illness and early death, you'd retire, barely retire and you'd be dead because of all the, the hardship that your body had been put through. And we basically, for example, don't have mining deaths anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Death from just about every um, cause except for smoking is on a serious decline. Some forms of cancers have risen. Many forms have fallen away. So I think there's a lot of good, good story to be told there. And that's really my purpose in that that book, to bring a, a positive view to it without denying, you know, where it's bad, it's bad. There's no question. Yeah.
0: Well, Joe, thank you for your insights today. Thank you for joining us. And we will definitely have you back on the Hale Report with your new book. Joe Atikian's new book today, though, is Autonomous The Coming Crash of Self Driving Cars. It's available on Amazon, where I got it, and also Kindle. Uh, There's a Kindle version, and I highly recommend reading it. It will get you thinking. And thank you to the people behind the scenes as well who make EconView possible, Managing Editor Ying Zan and our producer Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joe, for coming today.
1: Thank you too, Larry. Thanks for having me.